Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Chris Chinchilla. We are back firmly in 2020 now, a new decade if you think that sort of thing. I don't know. That's an argument I am not really interested in having. It's a new year. It's a new week. That's It's a new day. That's all I'm really interested in being sure of. Anyway, <laughs> I've got quite a few links to get through and I have a great interview with Shlomi Hod. Uh, where we spoke about responsible AI after a workshop that I did with him uh, towards the end of last year. That's coming up after my links. So let's dive straight into those. Beginning with kind of my uh, wildcard, I suppose. I'm just going to kick off with it. Nothing to do with many of the things I normally talk about, apart from history and travel and things like that. Fresh from CN Traveller by Caitlin Morton. Uh, this is actually from October last year. 45 abandoned places around the world that are eerily beautiful. I love scrolling through this one and looking at some of the amazing images and the descriptions of these 45 beautiful, or maybe beautiful, places uh, all over the world, uh, from the the fake Paris in China to the uh, old communist prison in Estonia to theme parks in Ukraine and on and on and on and on and on. Many, many here, some uh, some wonderful images. If this kind of interests you in the slightest, then uh, go and have a look. And I'd love to hear what your favorite one was. Next, a post from the It's Nice That blog. Uh, this is from Neil Argaval called Can the Weird Web. And actually, I like the way they have done some strange things with the font there and the word weird. Can the Weird Web make a comeback in 2020? I actually do remember these early days of the internet. I had uh, some websites way back in oof, 98 I used to make with frames and flashing buttons and all sorts of things, horrible colors. I think I even had what you could describe as a dark theme back then. And then along came uh, sites like Facebook and even MySpace, I suppose, sort of started this, although you had a degree of control on MySpace. And um, template sites and platforms that kind of give you a site easily and everything ended up looking a bit bland and a bit the same. And frameworks like Bootstrap and things like that kind of don't help. A lot of websites look the same now. And this is Neil's call for for making the web weird and wonderful again. He even he even sheds a tear in memory for something like Flash, which allowed people to create all sorts of weird and wonderful inventions. And the strange thing is the the technology to do what you want now is is easier than ever. You can do things that are better than Flash now with normal HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. So there's no reason we don't do it. It just feels like there's no reason to because uh, will people ever see it or find it anymore because we're so reliant on uh, aggregators and scrapers for people to find our uh, our works. Now, I know there's many movements out there of sort of glitch art and creative coding and these places where people just make things for fun, for 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 kicks, um, but maybe not enough of them. Um, and I think I'm going to make it one of my ambitions of the year to make a bit more crazy internet. I do have some. I have the Board Game Geek bot that uh, that gives out random board games once a week and there's plenty of things like that. So maybe they are out there. Maybe looking just purely on the web is... Um, not the right place, but I think these things are out there. Uh, but I suppose it's more about trying to find them. How do you make something weird and wonderful and then make it Googleable? I suppose, is the problem. Anyway, have a read. Uh, I would love to hear your ideas about uh, how we can make the web more weird and wonderful in the next decade. Next, another article actually from October last year to, from the Towards Data Science blog from Herman Crone. Hello world, not so easy in assembly, in assembly language. This sparked my interest for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because actually whilst I was at university, we did do one unit of assembly. And I think I do remember uh, the kind of pain he describes. We wrote several pages of code to add two numbers together, something that is one line in most uh, sort of uh, higher level programming languages. But also I just finished reading a book that I recommend called The Future Was Here on the history of the Amiga. And in that book, the author goes into a lot of detail about how games were programmed in assembly because they thought C was too heavy. And I wouldn't hear many programmers say that these days. Um, so I couldn't even imagine writing a complete game in assembly, but it was very normal 30 years ago and then things changed. So it's pretty unusual for most developers to write 
majority of code in assembly these days and it's difficult because everything has to be different for for each architecture and even if um, many computers these days use the same architecture it's still quite challenging so this is an interesting uh, post and he basically just prints hello world in assembly and it's not four pages it's actually less code than you might think but it's a lot of code for printing hello world and a lot of it is almost completely meaningless unless you understand the underlying architecture of the CPU. And this all harkens back to times when this was necessary to program anything. Uh, so it's quite a fascinating little insight back into the way the world used to be. I'm going to have another little uh, further delve into the way things used to be. This is a blog post from a friend of the show. He mentioned it actually in an interview I did for the uh, Enthusiastic Amateur podcast way back uh, middle of last year sometime from Sinclair Target on the 2-Bit History blog. Friend of a friend, the Facebook that could have been. The old friend of a friend file that was uh, an XML, as everything was in the early days of the internet, an XML declaration of the friends you could have and the connections between them and how people could set up their own kind of personal internetworks. And it's interesting because this does seem like a very logical connection to the sorts of uh, sites you used to see, like the, um, what are they called? The, the... The uh, circles uh, used to have these banners at the bottom of pages. Like I think it was called a circle, but maybe someone can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, these, these, the internet was always inherently connected by links, but we actually used to be much more explicit about doing it. This website is connected to the WISTED website through a little circle, and and this was a, a kind of following a similar paradigm of connecting people through uh, a file instead, and saying I am connected to X and Y through these relationships. And, and it's quite interesting. And of course, we know that it never really happened. Um, I suppose more convenient methods came along instead, things like Facebook, even sites before it, actually. This uh, FOAF standard is from, is from 2000. So, and it's crazy now, we're in 2020, 2000 seems like only yesterday to me, but it was 20 years ago, that's a long time. And Facebook, actually, if you consider Facebook, doesn't come that much longer after that. So you could start to see that people in the early 2000s were thinking about these concepts, but people just went in different directions. And as is invariably true, the most convenient one, not necessarily the best. Anyway, have a read if that interests you. And finally, in the old technology uh, segment, I seem to have a big one this year, uh, Ernie Smith on Input Mag. Facts on the Beach, the story of the audacious, visionary, totally calamitous iPad of the 90s. No, not the Newton, although it is mentioned. This is uh, referring to this is referring to the AT&T EO Personal Communicator 440. And they had very high production value ads telling you you could send a fax. You could do all sorts of things from the beach. I mean, we still sell this kind of, uh, I don't say lie. It's not really a lie, but this dream now. And this is a, a wonderful insight into this device that obviously was not massively successful. <laughs> uh, I've never heard of it until now. I thought this was going to be about the Newton, actually. Um, and uh, the history behind it, where it went wrong, lessons learned, etc., etc. Um, and and why. So if you want to know what happened to the eFax, it actually looks a lot like a Newton as well, strangely. Maybe that was just the the way that people thought of I mean, actually, it doesn't look that different from an iPad, just with a lot more padding on it now for speakers and extra gadgets and gizmos and things like that. And then, of course, the Palm sort of came out of this time. And that was successful for a small amount of time. And then that died a death as well. But but uh, we have had tablet-type devices with us in uh, in theory, in, in dream, in, in failure for some time until the iPad kind of came and actually made it work in at a grand scale. And now we talk about a technology that is dying. And maybe in a few years, we will look back with the same way on some of the devices we've just talked about uh, in a similar vein. This is by Mike Orkut. Uh, actually, that was another uh, failed social network, wasn't it, Orkut? Um, on the technology review, an energy for cash, the technology we might never replace. I live in Germany. Cash is still surprisingly popular. I was also recently in Japan, where cash is also still popular. But in a lot of the world, Scandinavian countries, um, in the UK, for example, 
in Australia, cash is rapidly dying. I think I have mentioned this before on the show. This does cause some problems for people who struggle to get credit, bank accounts uh, and cards and things like that. But uh, it's happening. It's, It's still going. And this is an article talking about this trend and who it's worrying, who it's concerning, who is benefiting from it. Uh, the privacy concerns, the, the dignity pr- preservation as well, um, and a whole bunch of things like that. Um, the trust, uh, the Scandinavian countries especially trust their governments. So this whole uh, sort of centralized finance is, is is interesting. And also in China, they trust their government whether they should or shouldn't. It's a whole other discussion, but they do. And thus, the convenience factor of cash-free is, is, is slowly, slowly going. And uh, you can actually see here the decline of cash as well. Um, And some of them are quite stuck. So China is huge. Japan has been a big drop, but um, still quite popular. And Germany is way up the top there. So (laughs) this doesn't surprise me, actually. So, So, yeah, I don't really know what I think of this sometimes. I do kind of like the, uh, the, the cashless um i do kind of like the, the the cashless life but i am aware of how it is affecting many people and the article does actually go into some details of how maybe that could be solved how could the people who want the privacy of cash enjoy cashless how could the people who find it hard to get access to bank accounts and cards enjoy cashless, etc.? So it's quite a nice pragmatic post about how this could go into the future. Wrapping up now with my board game and roleplay corner, and then we'll get on to my interview. This is one of from Bell of Lost Soul by J.R. Zambrano. D&D 2020 is the year we defeat the scheduling monster. Yes, I know this problem all too well. So many people I have who want to play games, and it's always so damn difficult to get everybody together. And this article goes into some ideas around how you might solve that. Uh, I don't know how realistic some of these will be, but uh, if you have the same problem, go and have a read and see if they work for you and let me know. And finally, I really wanted to jump on with some of this in the past. This is an article from Charlie Hall on Polygon. Alexa can now help you play Ticket to Ride in a sort of a way. The author actually describes it as being kind of awkward and not very ideal because Alexa obviously has no visuals, so it doesn't know what's on the board and things like that. But it's an interesting start. Um, I would be interested to see how designers may build their games to cope with this in the future. In fact, I may even think about it myself on a game I am working on. So for solo gamers, they can have... um, an extra person to play with. Uh, what if you have more than one Alexa playing? That would get quite fascinating. Could you have Alexa and Google Home both play a game with you and play against each other? That would get weird. Anyway, let me know your thoughts on this or any other link that I have discussed so far on the show. com slash contact. I'd love to hear from you. And now my interview with Shlomi Hoddle, where we talk about responsible AI. Enjoy. So firstly, I was just I was just looking at is it ethically.ai. Is that actually a thing? Because the the web address on the data natives profile doesn't seem to go anywhere. Yeah, okay. That's, that's, that's an interesting thing and also a good question. So in the past, I really called for stuff I worked on, like ethically AI. But then I figured out it's really not a, it's not a good name. Um, many times what you, you have is like, um, people have some, um, perception. What does it mean when you talk about ethics, ethics bring or echo additional meaning that are not so much important to me. Like, like some nonsense is like, you know, dogmatic, like that's the way you should behave, or this is all the only right way to do uh, something. I really encounter that, for example, when giving a workshop with data scientists about this area, it's really, you know, um, people really. Uh, we're starting to argue about this topic and I change it to, to responsible or responsibly. If you, if you will try responsibly.ai, this is going to work. Um, because I think the term responsible or responsibly as an adverb is, is a better term. Um, I, I also came across this, uh, some other people 
on a similar angle, but not doing the AI aspect using thoughtful, which I quite liked as well. Huh. Um, so, so yeah, there's a few different ways of doing it. Thoughtful is not enough. Yeah, I don't think thoughtful is enough because it's put, I think like, again, my focus right now is with, you know, practitioners and people that are working in this field. It's really like, I want to call to an action. And thoughtfully, like to be thoughtful is, is really good, but it's, it's still framed that in something like, you know, you see it, you thought about that and okay, now we do. But I think it should be something that is more um, embedded in, in the way you do or the way you, you're, you know, doing your profession. Okay. That, that, that's fine. I think this is, this is an interesting uh, conversation. Let's quickly introduce who you are. We started on a very, uh, <laughs> just going straight into it, but who are you? <laughs> Uh, so I'm Shlomi, um, I'm 31 years old. I live in Berlin for already three, three years and a half. Um, right now in the last year and a half, I'm, I'm very focused about, again, what I call responsible AI, how we make sure, um, that the use in this technology just brings so much good, um, to humanity, society, um, in the same time, uh, doesn't cause harm, um, and it have negative impact on people life or society or humanity in general or you know um communities and stuff like that um my journey to this point is a bit like funny uh, i started a long time ago in area of cybersecurity in doing more um algorithmic research in this area um in some point i figure out okay the kind of people that working in the tech industry, specifically on cybersecurity, but also in tech in general, um, are very, you know, are coming from specific group of people, mostly from the center of Israel, less from the suburbs, uh, mostly men, and not so much minorities and stuff like that. So um, jointly with uh, with few colleagues, we started an NGO. Um, the three try to, to tackle or to, um, to, to tackle this problem of the, of, of, you know, the diversity in tech and the way we did it, we started running multiple program nationwide in Israel, especially in the suburbs, um, it, it, like in, in teaching and learning a really professional and high level um, tech stuff. Like you know, we had, for example, a program for uh, high schoolers. They were coming from um, for three years, twice a week, three hours per 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 class, and really like uh, they were like learning like uh, programming, networks, computer security, and doing like projects around that. Um, and I've been there, like I was a co-founder of this NGO. It's really scaled up. Today we have more than uh, 50, 15,000 uh, alumni. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite huge NGO in Israel. Um, I mean, we have right now being around 200 instructors or something like that. Uh, um, and like doing projects with the Ministry of Education, like formal, you can like bring tons of stuff. And in some point I was feeling like thinking around two and a half years ago. Okay. Um, I want to work on a new problem, um, for the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years. And then I started the master, uh, studies here in, 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 uh, in Potsdam, in fact, um, to try to take some kind of, of a break and, and play with different kinds of problems. So I had competition, um, uh, did some projects around them and, what they call again, responsible AI or ethical AI, uh, one by far. Like, it seems like it's really like a technology is going to transform and already transforming our society. And I think it's the issue of how to do it right is, is somehow neglected. Although in the last year or so, we see a lot of people getting into that, but like, I don't think it's enough. There's uh, a lot of people talking about okay. it. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and this is why I found your approach interesting and some of the approaches I've been thinking about myself is this aspect of taking the talk and actually giving people, giving developers, the people we keep talking about as needing to take responsibility, actually something they can work with that they understand. Um, not just, hey, you should do this. Like, okay, how? You know, <laughs> actually something useful. Um, and, and this is, so, uh, uh, we've met a couple of times, but, um, 
I came to a workshop you did, uh, I don't know, a month ago, a few weeks ago. I can't even remember now how when it was now. Um, I don't think we quite got, there was a lot in the workshop. And as, as is typical with workshops, everyone is at a different level. So it's sometimes hard to, to know where to pitch things. But I don't think we quite got to the point in the workshop before we ran out of time where we actually started using your library or your tools. I don't think so. So maybe, um, explain what they are and how people can use them. Yeah, cool. So I, I would argue the tool is not the important thing, but like um, for that in a moment, like I started to to build this. Okay, what I noticed, like, uh, again, when I started to get into that, that there is starting to emerge research and results and techniques, for example, how to handle a situation when, you know, you build a machine learning model and from, let's say, one definition is, is unfair to one group. Um, and there is a lot of research happening. I mean, okay, a lot is a big word, but there is some research uh, that happened around it and it's, and, and they're getting more and more. And this, this knowledge is not being transformed to the industry, to practitioners. And I have plenty of friends, uh, doing stuff like that. So, you know, I talk with them and I look what people are talking in the, you know, all this Facebook groups and mailing links. So it's, 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 you know, this knowledge is not being transformed. And I really believe that if you want to make data scientists and, and tech people um, adapt this kind of thing, like I have this phrase, you know, the way to a data scientist heart is going through um, his Jupyter notebook, like the tool of trade um, she's using. So if you can do import to some library with all these kind of techniques and, and metrics and stuff, uh, there is higher level, higher chance that uh, they will adopt that. So I really started to work on that. And just when I like, at the first version, you know, published something, which is like September one year ago, um, IBM <laughs> released their own tool for that with like, you know, like 20 people or I don't know, 15 people worked on that. Um, it was really more massive than, than what I did. Um, and then later there were more like big groups of people working and releasing tools. Um, so I, I, put it aside because I said, okay, there isn't, no, this is not where it will be my added value. Um, but in the same time, I think like what I learned is my thought with the tool, like what we are missing is tooling. This is not the issue. Um, and the real issue is first incentive. And for me, it's still unsolved problem. How do you make company or a team whatsoever to take care about that i mean we can dig into that yeah and the other thing is like you know this is very tech thinking and there is a nice um a few papers about that that in tech thinking you think about how to abstract thing you know how to make reduction how to solve the general case but then we find out when we want to think about these responsible or ethical issues of ai or technology in general it's super con contextual <laughs> So, so this kind of tech thinking is, it's, you know, is, is not the right approach to do that. Um, so this is why I also start to engage more and more in education settings. Uh, also giving workshop and soon going to be academic course about that that I'm helping to develop. Um, I mean, if, if you ask me, like, I think my... So yeah, yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, so let's take the example of the the workshop um, that I attended. What what do you what do you try to teach people? I think okay. I, I, this is this is this is a good question. Um, um, I think like you know like so it's exactly what you said. Like so many people are talk about bias, fairness, and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And and this is wonderful. We should talk about it and keep awareness and and discuss about, discuss about this kind of issue. But one of the biggest challenges is, is like the ability to transform, you know, what our value talk or even legal talk or ethical talk and to move it to the technical domain and, and do this vice versa, this kind of transformation. Um, and I think my workshop is really trying to tackle that because, you know, we can say, okay, we want a product to be not biased, whatever that means, right? But there is some, you know, limitation about what it's meant to be biased or not to be biased that, and what a practitioner can do in the model um, to achieve that. So what I try to do in the workshop is like taking 
some specific model, some specific box, and to give the technical intuitive understanding how it works and how a bias might manifest it, might be manifested inside of that. And the cool thing that even, I mean, you tell me, I mean, you, you were, you took part in that. Um, like, even though, like, we, we, I mean, I, I, like from, you know, my talk with other attendees, like they do try, start to, to grasp what it's mean to be biasing the specific model we talked. And a lot of questions, like methodological question, practical question came up naturally by exploring that. I mean, the one I like the most, for example, is, is the question of measurement. Like, let's say you define the right way to measure bias. And you do, you, you apply technique to remove this bias. I think we talk about the gender bias. Then someone else come with another measure that maybe captured that better. And then you think, oh, it didn't work. And in a world of, of you know, this is very thinking in the business part, right? You want, you want to have your metrics and optimize on top of them. But we need to re- keep in mind that the metrics are, um, or measurements are just, you know, one dimensional capture of reality or just one aspect of that. When we talk about, you know, values or ethics, what we care, how we want our society, society to be, it's really hard to make this, this reduction to, to very few metric, uh, metrics. So, so we should be very careful and very aware to the limitation of, of doing this kind of stuff. So this is an example kind of question that we talk about in the workshop. Uh, for example, I think this is, this is, it's, it's interesting because then you get to this whole point of people. Uh, I mean, ethics and anything vaguely relating to sort of philosophical thought has always been kind of un, in, in always been intentionally unclear, unclear <laughs> because that's kind of the point. Uh, and it's contextual and it's cultural and there's all sorts of inputs. It's not black and white. But when we come to technology, technology likes to have um, a little bit more black and white, uh, things that can pass and fail, measurements. Um, so I suppose the, the big measurement here might be, uh, let, let's take the bias one, for example, just, just, just to stick with an, an example for now. Um, how would you know if whatever your, your, your teaching, whatever people put in practice, how would we all know if it's been successful? That's a good question. It's really good question, right? Like, um, and I, I still don't, don't have, I don't think I have a good answer for that right now. No, I'm, I'm serious. Like, uh, it's something I spend, I mean, you know, like what is the reason, right? The reason is like, let's say if, it, you know, if I cannot look into how people are working, like, you know, and when they deploy model and do it, like, I don't have the, the mechanism to be able to do it. And it's something I'm really struggling with, you know, like in the NGO, I worked in, in the education. One of the thing, of the things you really care about is, you know, find meaningful way to measure whether people learn or change. I mean, in the NGO, for example, we really care about more of the soft skill, you know, self-efficacy, ability to learn by yourself, it's self-learner. And, and we spend quite a lot of time in figuring out or trying to, to be able to measure change in that. And I think this is similar, like this is a similar challenge, like um, how to be able uh, to do that. Um, my current thoughts, by the way, is like, you know, if you want to be responsible in the sense, you know, let's say developing a product that use AI or or data aspects, it's really about 60 to 70% of, of, of being responsible is about how you make the process of developing this product. For example, do you make, take into consideration into design, we're going to be the user, how the product might impact on them. When we are doing the development, do you think in what are the right measures, for example, fairness, privacy, and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so I really think if we will, if I will, if we will, if we will make, companies making this kind of process. Um, and th- so this will be, for example, like, you know, by itself, by, by the process itself, it will give us 60, uh, 70%. But, yeah. I, I don't know yet how to measure it. It's a really good. Yeah. Question. And it's what people will want. This is the, the crazy thing. It, people want measurements, uh, especially engineers. 
how much have I optimized the process? <laughs> but so, so here's another interesting perspective that one of the big questions that came into my mind, uh, during the workshop. So just to give some context, um, it was, um, a data set of, uh, news from Google News, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's, which it's which like, is an aggregate of other news, of course. Yeah. Exactly. And then the investig, exploring the kind of bias that can be especially around roles, jobs, things like that and gender. So the case that a lawyer will often be thought of as in one gender and a, um, another, a nurse will be thought of as another gender and et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, a lot of these in, in social aspects are somewhat obvious to people. We, we kind of know that these biases are there. Um, but the interesting thing I found was that I, I just kept thinking, well, the problem is that, um, these jobs, are not representative. We, we know this. <laughs> so, so how does what we're doing help? And then I kind of think, well, maybe if, um, if the, the, the content that, so say for example, creating a better data set helps, um, a tool like Grammarly highlight that when you write an article, maybe you shouldn't um, be so specific about gender on roles because that then in the long run helps, People who want to be a nurse who aren't female think, well, I can be a nurse because I don't always read about the fact that it's females being nurse and, and vice versa and et cetera, et cetera. But I kind of was also thinking like, is A, that's a really long process <laughs> and B, is it enough? Is that, is that kind of the best we can do? I, I don't know. I got very stuck on thinking like, this is, this is great. And we've, we've highlighted biases that we kind of knew were there, but how, what could we, how can it help us change things and actually change the real problem? That's kind of where I got a bit stuck. So, so let's just, let me phrase it. a very like long you feel. question. So yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's a really good one. I, I just like you're saying to address the real problem, you mean the real problem of human are biases, right? Like we, we are as human. We yeah, are and in biased certain cases, in certain contexts, yeah. it's different things. You know, that the fact is that most politicians are male. Um, and us knowing that through analyzing a data set doesn't necessarily help us solve the problem because we already knew that. So how can these, these things we're talking about help that is, I guess, where I'm trying to get. So, so I really think you had a really good question. Um, and I think, first of all, we need to keep in mind um, that this is the tough problem, like it's really deep in our society, deep in our language. And I don't think, you know, it's like um, it's going to be one, you know, one thing solution. Yeah. No, no, but the point, you know, sometimes I... You know, like, like, let's take the approach you said about this grumble. By the way, there is a, there are startups doing similar stuff. For example, I think it's called Text.io. It's a startup that gives you feedback about how you write um, a job description. Yeah, yeah. and I, I do a lot of work in this space anyway, so it's one that fascinates yeah. me. So. Yeah, so, um, but, you know, like, when you're doing that, like, you have multiple impacts. It's not only as, as the writer of the job description, you get feedback, can improve for the next time and then you can say okay you influence on someone individually the way to communicate but for the long term if we make job description and we and for example we we open the possibility of different groups genders uh ethnic groups whatsoever to to apply to this kind of job you know and we judge them as they are um so you know in the long term like in time span of one, five, ten years, I don't know. Um, we change this, what we call the reality, right? The percentage, the bias uh, you have for different roles. So, so, so I think like, you know, um, I mean, I'm not talking about right now, though, like you can say, okay, like we need our politicians to do something with education system to do. I mean, we can dig into that and talk, but I, I'm on purpose not getting that. I just want to focus on where is the AI part. So, I think, um, so this is a really interesting thing. So what you said, like sometimes we can use with AI to understand our biases better. 
like it's some people say about oh this responsible ethical AI it's a risk but I see that also as opportunity for us because we suddenly have this data and we can reflect to ourselves um, what are the biases uh, so because because think about for example if a startup make a, a product to help people to filter a like a CV right and then you scale it up and let's say it's biased and or in the good in the good sense it's biased in the bad sense it's like doing random results about some group of people. Um, then you scale it up. They have the same product, the same decision maker in every, multiple companies. And then, for example, if for some reason you might not pass in one company, all the other became like become blocked for you. The, 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 the scale issue play a different role. So by filtering out you, someone for you know, for biasing purposes, reducing biasing purposes means they might get filtered out everywhere. So it's almost like the reverse of the problem we have at the moment. That's sort of, well, it's the same problem, just the other way around. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, no, you ask me why, why people see that as, as no, a I, change to yeah, decision-making as, as risky. Yeah. Scale-up, like by, by replacing a human decision-maker by a machine decision-maker is not same. I mean, let's say it like that. In general, machine in are doing better than human in decision making. Generally, I mean, depending on the speaking, like from the sixties, we know that. But changing with machine sometimes behave differently. For example, the idea of scaling up, it's you know use the same machine over and over in multiple domain or multiple companies. Uh, many times machine is opaque, like you cannot, you know, appeal to the process or do something like, you know, so um, this is the point of opportunity. And yeah, so introducing fairness into algorithms won't necessarily solve the problem because it could, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's kind of, it's difficult. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's maybe let's let's think where where would the the ideas that you've been experimenting with the education the tools whatever the combination that uh, you want to pick where do you think they're kind of most useful to your average developer right now working on an e-commerce project working on a infrastructure project etc cetera, etc cetera. like where do you think um, these ideas be most useful to them right now? Or most useful to their customers, I guess, as well? Yeah. Well, I think, and I think I, 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 I mean, there is one thing you said, I think, when we, we shared a panel once, like a chief skepticism uh, officer or something like that. Right? Yeah, I've actually seen um, you? a better description of this recently, which I've forgotten. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> is, yeah. So, you know, I think like, like, I mean, generally, like if you're working and your work is going to make impact on people's life, um, probably uh, you should, you know, um, these issues might be a concern, like starting to think responsibly and to be skeptic about the, your work. Um, of course, since, I mean, for, in some domain, like, you know, it's, it's less an issue. For example, if you make an, uh, you know, making hard disks, uh, communication of hard disk or like access to data faster, you know, I would say, okay, probably, you know, the ethical issues that might come out of that are a bit, um, not a big, like not, not that big or something. If we dig, we for sure find something. But if, for example, you make advertisement and of course you make tra targeted one or try to make um, sometimes different pricing models for different kind of groups. If you make a product that make decision on people's life, whether in HR, health issues, insurance, you know? So I think for this kind of people that making this kind of product, um, thinking about responsibility and basically to be responsible is to think about the impact of what i'm doing and what can i do to make the impact with less harm um is really it is really worth to do so and and you know there is there is a lot of uh, uh research on that which is mostly relevant for data scientists but ultimately you know the, the first order um 
thing you can do is exactly to 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 have this kind of skepticism to to put inside of the process of developing a product ask question what the potential impact can be how can stuff can get ro- like totally wrong um and you know just just be, being a science fiction uh, writer mindset like really think how this thing can become evil so it's probably won't become evil as you imagine but this kind of very pessimistic thinking uh, might be useful to highlight potential issue and, and what you can do uh, about that. And, and yes, also in turn, there is different kind of guidelines and and um, you know kind of guidebook what you can do. Uh, but I think at the core, at the basic, it's having this kind of awareness, this kind of you know not the thinking that what I'm doing is the best thing ever to humanity. Like yeah. Yeah, it's often not. <laughs> so I guess the problem comes back here, though. I think we've mentioned it briefly already, is that without using regulation and forcing forcing developers into a, something, um, how do we encourage the, the average developer who has got deadlines, um, OKRs, uh, wants to check out the latest cool framework, wants to refactor their code and kind of do things that not wanting to stereotype that developers like to do. How do we encourage them to care about this as well? Because I can imagine that to a lot of them, this seems either pointless, um, unnecessary, a hindrance. Um, yeah. So how do we convince people that it's worthwhile doing without forcing them to? <laughs> Yeah. So um, my approach to that is that we need multiple mechanism to to make this incentive. So, for example, yeah, regulation is 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 good one. We should be really taking care. We don't try to regulate everything. I mean, for example, if you start just to by making if you're a startup and you start to make a dating app, you know, we don't necessarily need to have hard regulation about that. Uh, but if you, for example, make a new company that make a give loan to people because you can calculate credit score better than the uh, traditional agencies probably want to put more some more regulation about that so regulation is definitely i mean we really care that it's not you know stopping innovation it's really one mechanism um another kind of mechanism and this is the one my my focus in is what they call the professional responsibility uh, but it's really long-term goal and like it's it's definitely not one person job is like how we can shift the the perception or what to be professional or what to be good in your job um i'm mostly focused on data science practitioners but it's of course relevant for everyone else in tech um like for example i mean I, the metaphor i like to use is like uh, uh in the subfield called psychometrics it's it's the field you know how you test people you know all the sat test and um, what happened when it started in world war ii in the u.s you know there was need to recruit tons of people need to run like you know large-scale tests to to figure out who is fit into which uh to which kind of position like they started to make testing and like i mean nobody cares about fairness or even nobody thought about that right um and in the course of i don't know 20, 30, 40 years. Today, if you ask psych, like psych, psychometrician, um, when you, she develop a new test, and uh, if she wants to think about issues of fairness, impact, bias, she's not professional. She's not doing doing her job well. Like she 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 will feel like you know she's betraying her profession. And this is the kind of shit. Like this is for me like the kind of shift. Um, I would like to, to try to, to push to, uh, we should say that this kind of transition happened through tons of, uh, Supreme court ruling and PR disasters. So uh, it's, it's, if you ask me what is the third approach I have in mind, it's really PR disaster. Take companies. I mean, we see that this is all, I mean, tons of journalists are doing, yeah, yeah. Journalists are doing that all the time, you know, publishing, we tested this system, we find this out, or academics research is doing that, and it does make some kind of push in this direction. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, but for me, the, the incentive question is the most, the most difficult one question. And as someone who has, has done uh, a few workshops on this, and then the one I was at was, was pretty much full, 
Um, what's been the general feedback you've had on A, the topic and then the approach and how motivated are people to, to take what they've learned and apply it to their day job? I think so. So I think what the workshop, this specific workshop is doing, which is just 19, uh, 90 minutes is really working on this incentive because suddenly people saying, Oh, this is interesting. I didn't think about it's about my job. Uh, I'm doing, especially for data practitioners, I'm doing similar stuff, maybe related, you know, I'm, I'm building a model that they can make a text and classify that or doing something like that. But what, what should I do now? Like, like this is, this is, this is still, still a gap. And, um, so, so now I'm, I'm starting to spend more time on that. Like now I'm helping to develop a course that will run in Israel for both data scientist student and law student together in the same class. We'll try to give them the kind of thinking to make it more forward. Um, and I'm also trying to, I mean, this is a new project, um, like make some kind of really practical handbook. Like, okay, you are interested in that. I will give you this kind of overview and the best resources for the kind of stuff um, you want to do. Um, because I think, you know, like what's really interesting, we talk, like we, we gone through this talk, it was breaking down all different challenges with the incentive, the access to resources. And so I think my hope is to try to finish to model this kind of problem or challenges and trying to figure out how we can address them. And what, what other resources would you recommend that, uh, developers or anybody interested in uh, bringing um, responsibility into their code and their, their projects, where else could they start? Um, so the handbook is already live and the only page, the only non-empty page, there is the one with resources. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I will give you the URL later. It's handbook.responsibly.ai. And there is a resources page and this is like the crowded list that I've collected. I mean, there is way more, but this is the one I would suggest as, as beginning, like it's including some textbooks, videos, slides, some more, um, very light philosophical, um, paper that, you know, to give you this kind of the mood and also toolbox and courses, um, you can dig in. Um, but yeah. The, the one I've been working my way through that I have found quite good so far, but still it, it, it lacks sometimes the, the, the practical aspect. Although we all know that sometimes trying to tell people how to implement something in, in development is difficult. So that's sometimes intentionally left unclear is the one from the IEEE, um, ethically aligned design. Um, I'm only about halfway through, but that's had quite a lot of interesting, uh, information and resources and ideas. So far. Yeah. 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 I mean, it seems that all the big organization did something related to IEEE. Uh, OECD have something. I've, I've learned that some triple um, uh, AI, which is the uh, AI association, like free So you, you see many Google have really good um, guidebook. If you develop an app that are going like, it's more UX UI point of view. Uh, which I find, which I found it really good. Um, so yeah, big tech and or big organization are definitely in that. I think this is it's actually it's actually strange because we you've already mentioned IBM, we've mentioned the IEEE, you've mentioned Google, but I don't know these things still seem to be somewhat hard to find. Sometimes <laughs> it's, it's sort of strange how um, they produce these resources, but. I don't necessarily know many people using them apart from people like you and I who are interested. Incentive. Um, this is exactly yeah. the point. This is the, yeah. why you would, like, this is the point. Why would you have ever think that fairness or bias is an issue, you know? Um, so, so I think, yeah, it's definitely the, the incentive or even just to be aware about these kind of topics. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've already mentioned the responsibly.ai, but anywhere else people can get in touch with you and stay up to date with what you're doing? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess uh, you can, you're all welcome to uh, send me email if you're interested. And, and yeah, I shouldn't already open a Twitter account. I, I know. 
<laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure if it's worth opening Twitter accounts anymore, but anyway. <laughs> and do you have any other workshops that people might be able to attend physically or online in the near future? So I guess, uh, I mean, I will publish in my website in the shlami.xyz probably the next ones. Um, I hope to have one in Berlin in the uh, first weeks of January, but it's not clear yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just going to move to Boston to start a PhD in the mid of January. So, um, we will see. That was my interview with Shlomi Hoddle on Responsible AI. I hope you enjoyed that. I found that quite an interesting interview. I have been lining up lots of interviews for the next few weeks from CES. So expect some of those coming very soon. I hope you enjoyed the interview last week with Ken Lane of Postman talking about APIs. Now I have uh, events coming up. I, I wanted to do less this year. Of course, they're already starting to, to warm up. So what is coming up over the next few months? Sustain Summit in Brussels, discussing sustaining open source. I'll be there. FOSDEM, straight after that, will also be there, just uh, hanging out, seeing open source, seeing what's going on. Uh, in February, I will be at Megacom, Megacom in Jerusalem, doing a few things, actually, just solidifying the details there. And hot off the tails of that, I'm actually going to be at CorozaCon, Gaming Con. I'm hopefully going to be running a couple of games there in Poland. I can't really say. If you're not coming already, then it's sold out, so I can't say come and join me. And then shortly following that, I'll be at South by Southwest back in the, in Austin in the middle of March. So quite a few places you could come and say hi. You can find my CS coverage now on DZone as well. should be published by the time this is released. My roundup of some of my favorite things from the event I didn't go to. But I hope you enjoy my roundup too. You can find more about me at christianjilla.com. Support the show. Please rate, review, share wherever you heard it. Um, and I'd love to have your feedback at slash contact, com slash contact. Always good to hear from you. So until next time, if you have been, thank you very much for listening. 